Recently, in fact, in the last week or so, a, a federal judge in Wisconsin declared that this next Thursday's National Day of Prayer was unconstitutional. It was U.S. District Judge Barbara Crabb of the Western District of Wisconsin. She agreed with the organization that filed the suit. Judge Crabb agreed with the, the organization called the Freedom from, from Religion Foundation, and their assertion that laws mandating a day of prayer violate the First Amendment prohibition against any law that lends itself to the establishment of religion. A lot of people get separation of church and state in their mind as being something that actually exists, and that's not what the Constitution says, but you can go back and read that at another time. The organization has a history of, of suing the White House administrations in an effort to prevent the president from making the traditional annual proclamation to invite Americans to focus on prayer during a particular day. The good news is that the U.S. Department of Justice responded to the judge's decision saying this, we have reviewed the court's decision and it does not prevent the president from issuing a proclamation. So there will officially be a national day of prayer, which we are grateful for. Our study today, I want us to focus on the Bible's admonition for us to pray, and specifically that it, it tells us to pray one for another according to God's will. And I want to make sure we get that part in there according to God's will. While it is unlikely that a judge's ruling would ever prohibit any of us from praying, there are some things that do prohibit us from praying. Even among Christians, there can be some common but false beliefs about prayer. Some people don't pray because they don't think it'll do any good. They don't think it'll make any difference. In their minds, God is going to do what He's going to do, regardless of whether somebody prays about it or not. And they reason this. What sense does it make for players to pray before a football game when each team is playing for, praying for a victory? Somebody's going to win, somebody's going to lose anyway. And that's the logic they use, that whatever's going to happen is going to happen, so why bother praying? Some people don't pray because they think God, they don't think God is all that interested in the details of their lives. It's easy for us to understand sometimes that we need to pray about the big ticket items, but not the small stuff. Their logic, however wrong, is that God thinks he's got, that we think that God thinks that he's got bigger things to do than to mess with our prayers. Many years ago, I heard a quote that, that fits this example quite well. It was from Pastor Raymond Bishop from New Albany, Mississippi. Here's what he said. He said, the devil will try to convince us that there is no prayer that is the right, there is no need that is the right size to take to God in prayer. He will say that it is too small and you shouldn't bother him. Or he will say that it's too big and you don't deserve it. And it's so true. And because of those feelings, many people just don't take any of their needs to God in prayer. Now, I'm not going to ask if anybody's ever felt that way, because honestly, down inside, I think there's times that we have all felt just that way. There are some people that will not pray because they're mad at God about the undesirable ways that he has answered their prayers in the past. Or they feel like he takes too, too long to respond to certain prayers. And primarily that's the ones that they prayed about yesterday that haven't happened just like they wanted yet. And so they reason that prayer is of no use in the long run. And hopefully today I want us to see that, 
that there is a reason for us to pray, that we are to pray for one another, and when we pray, we should pray in accordance with God's will. And so with that in mind, let's go to Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the holy and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace and peace to you from God our Father. A little history about Paul and his relationship and connection to the Colossians. Paul never actually met the believers at Colossae, the ones whom he is writing the letter that we're looking at today, to whom he is writing that letter. So Paul started his letter by introducing himself. He identified himself as an apostle, apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. As an apostle, he was one of those who was called to preach the gospel. He was called to help establish churches in various places throughout the Roman Empire. Remember that the Romans were in charge of the pretty much all the known world at that time. And Paul left out of Jerusalem and went across what is now known as Southern Europe and established churches all through there. Paul's opening statement in the letter makes it clear that his desire is to proclaim the gospel. And his desire to proclaim the gospel was not a work of his own choosing. He said that he had been called by God. In the process, he had been given a mission. One that was partly being filled by what he was doing right here. And that was he was writing a letter to the church at Colossae. Paul let the Colossians know that he knew about the quality of their faith. He called them holy and faithful brothers in Christ. You see, their reputation preceded them. Paul had heard from one person in particular we'll talk about in a minute, but from others that had probably passed through there about this church and how faithful these people were. And when he said that you are holy and faithful brothers in Christ, he let them know that they shared the, that he shared the same faith that they embraced. And he let them know that they were known to be faithful and godly in a way that exhibited their faith. We see later in, in Paul's writing to the Colossians, this was reported to Paul by Epaphras, the pastor who ministered to the believers at Colossae. That was their pastor. And later we see in Paul's writing, he says, your pastor actually told me how strong your faith is. Paul wished his readers grace, which denotes God's favor and concern for those people with whom he has renewed his relationship. He wished them peace, which refers to the restored fellowship we have with God through the blood of Jesus Christ. And that was his introduction. Then he gets into what he wanted to really say. Colossians chapter 1, verses 3 through 8. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Back up a second. We always thank God when we pray for you. I think that tells us right there, the main thing of this whole passage of Scripture, even though Paul had never been to that church before, he had never met those people before, he was saying that I pray for you. Now let's go on. Because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints. The faith and love that spring... The faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven and that you have already heard about in the word of truth, the gospel, that has come to you. 
All over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace in all truth. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. So Paul starts off with talking about his prayers to the Colossians. He says that he prays for them. He says that he thanked God for the quality of their faith. And one aspect that he points out of their faith was this single-minded devotion to Christ. The people of Colossae knew that what they believed about Christ was true and that putting their faith in Him was the only way that they could secure the right relationship with God. Now, the importance of this is when you understand that, and when they understood that, it gave them the correct perspective that allowed them to live their lives with a hope that was placed in something greater than this world. That your hope is stored up in heaven. You understand. You people get it. You understand that that your hope is not in this world, that it is something beyond this. Another thing that impressed Paul about the Colossians was that their faith in Jesus resulted in love for their brothers in Christ. If we call ourselves Christians and we call ourselves believers and that faith that we have does not cause us to have a love for our fellow brothers in Christ, then we need to go back and re-examine what we really have. Jesus said in John thirteen thirty five, he said, by all By this, all men will know that you are by disciples. How? If you love one another. In 1 John 3 and 14, it shows a very stark contrast to that. Look what it says. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. So we see in the first passage that loving our brothers shows that we're disciples of Christ. But then 1 John 3.14 tells us anyone who doesn't do that remains in death. So I think it kind of points out the importance of loving our brothers. While loving our brothers shows that we're disciples of Christ, what really exemplifies Christian love is seeing a need and then filling it. It's not expressed just in words. We don't show our love to our brothers and sisters by just telling them that we love them. We show our love to our brothers and sisters by proving to them through our actions that we love them. This is the type of law, the type of love that Paul saw coming from the Colossians. He saw that what they had was so real that their pastor not only bragged on them, but others that passed through Colossae and came back in touch with Paul came back and said, those people really get it. And these aspects of Christian living, the ones characterized by the believers in Colossae, should be evident to all believers, and that even extends to us today. Paul said that the true meaning and effect of the gospel is universal. In Colossians 1 and 6, that it's universal all over the world. This gospel is bearing fruit, and it's growing. He said what you're doing isn't just affecting you personally. What you're doing, the kind of love that you're showing, the kind of of sincere love that you're showing for one another is bearing fruit and it's growing all over the world. 
And again, I will say this. I believe what Paul was really saying is these people get it. They understand it. They live it. And because of that, the gospel is bearing fruit and others are being saved, not just in Colossae, but around the world. And this next, next passage of Scripture brings us to what I really want us to grasp today. Remember, Paul had heard through their pastor and probably others that these people were the real deal. And although Paul wasn't there with them, look what he said in Colossians chapter 1, verses 9-14. through 14. He said, For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with all knowledge of His will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Even though I don't even know you, this is what I've been praying. We pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please Him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. Being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might so that you may have the great endurance and patience and joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Paul wanted the the lives of believers to be evidenced by joy and gratefulness. But Paul, and probably because of his own experience, he knew that the greatest hindrance to those things, the greatest hindrance to joy, are trials and difficulties. Because of that, if we as Christians want to experience joy, then the trials and the difficulties we face must be responded with responded to with an eternal perspective we have to an attitude of acknowledging that this too will pass or an attitude of the best is yet to come we have to possess the realization that this life is not what it's all about if we really want to be positive in our walk with christ if we really want to have joy then when trials come against us we need to understand that this is not what we're living for god for Abraham went into the promised land. He never owned a home. He was a nomad. He lived out of a tent. He traveled and moved around. And yet it was the land that God gave him. But it also says that Abraham was looking for a place whose builder and maker was God. Even though this land was promised to him, and it was his, wherever he set his foot was going to be his, and his families and and generations to come, he still wasn't going to settle for a place here because he was looking for something far better. And I believe that's what Paul was saying here. If we really want to find the joy that we can find as Christians, then we can't be content with just what happens in this life. And we have to realize that our promise is far beyond what happens here. The strength and and power to overcome difficulties comes from our knowledge of God and His will. Obtaining this knowledge begins with the desire to please God and have a life that bears fruit, kind of like the people at Colossae. Growing in this knowledge occurs when we take the time to study the Word of God. 
You want to know what God's will is? Study the Word of God. What better place could we we go to find God's will than in His Word that He's given us? And yes, it's good. It's good that we read books written by by modern day Christians. It's good that we we listen to sermons and we hear other people's perspective. But if we really want to know what the will of God is, it's here. And when we study it, we'll find that all of a sudden we find a lot better ability to go and pray in the will of God because we understand what God's character is. But the spiritual insights that we we get through this whole process are absolutely useless unless they're acted upon. You see, we can study the Word of God. We could memorize the Word of God from front to back. We could have all knowledge of everything that's in there and understand every word. But if we never act on it, it's useless. It's no different than if a person goes out and they... They learn how to swim, and yet when they fall overboard from the boat, they just lay there and drown. They had the knowledge, but if you don't put it into action, it won't save you. Knowledge alone will not save you. You have to act upon it. Paul prayed that the knowledge of God's truth would result in changed lives. That's what he prayed for, for the people of Colossae. He said, I haven't stopped praying for you since I heard about you. And this is what I pray. I pray that God will change your lives. And the result would be lives that are understanding God's Word and reflecting God's character. Paul reminded believers, and and we have to realize that the letter that Paul wrote to the church at Colossae, it wasn't a private letter between Paul and them. It has not been preserved for all of these years for it to remain a private letter between Paul and the church at Colossae. The words that he spoke to them apply just as much to us today. It's not just a historical book that we read and go, well, that was great. They had a great relationship. No. It's supposed to be something that we look at and say, that applies to me today. And Paul reminded the believers that they should seek to know and follow God's will. It's because they share in a spiritual inheritance. And the and spiritual inheritance should be evidenced in a way that it, it live their life. It should be evidenced in a way that causes them to change their life. Verse 13 says that Christians are no longer in the dominion of darkness. Which means when we are saved, we are not the same person. And then as a result, they depend on, and how they live should be different from those who still live in darkness. If we still live in darkness, then what can we say we were saved from? Paul prayed that believers would choose to live like ones who are redeemed and forgiven. Not be forced to live like those who had been redeemed and forgiven, But it would be their choice because if we only do the things that we do because we are forced to do it, if we only do the things we do because we think we're going to go to hell if we don't, 
That's really not what Paul was trying to say. He was trying to say that we study the Word of God. We We realize what the character of God is. And we want to be different. And so we're changed because it's what we want. We choose that. Paul realized also that no matter who we are, we are subject to attack by the devil. I don't care how spiritual you are. At some point, it's going to happen. He understood that it was imperative for him to pray for the different ones in the churches spread out across the Roman Empire. Even though he never met these people, he said he prayed for them continually. And this is why. He understood the Word of God He understood that when you understand the Word of God, that we are able to pray the will of God. Growing up, I often heard people pray that we're just going to pray that God's will be done. And it was hard to understand because... I would often say to myself, and maybe you never felt this way, I would often say to myself, I thought we were praying for this to happen. But then someone said, but no, we're going to pray for the will of God to be done. And here is, I think, what Paul, how he explained that. That when we understand what the Word of God is, and we understand the character of God, then all of a sudden we understand the will of God. And then when we pray, we're not praying for our own selfish reasons. We are actually praying that the will of God be done. Because when we understand the Word of God, we won't pray in a way that goes against the will of God. You say, well, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense because that way I don't get what I want. That's kind of the point. We are not to pray for what we want. We are supposed to pray that the will of God be done in our lives. That's right. We need to pray one for another. And when we realize that others are praying for us, it makes that easier. But how and what do we pray? I will tell you this. Praying for one another is not a a process of just praying prosperity on one another. Like some kind of pyramid scheme. You pray for me that God will bless me and make me rich, and I'll pray for you that God will bless you and make you... No, that's not what it's about. Again, when we study the Word of God and we realize the character of God, then we understand how to pray the will of God for our brothers and sisters. And we hope that they are doing the same thing. Paul prayed that God would fill the people at the church of Colossae, and this is in verse 9, with the knowledge of His will through all understanding and wisdom. And his reason was not so they would get a new car. Rather, this is the reason. In order that they may please Him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. Don't raise your hands on this, but when is the last time we prayed that for someone? In fact, if we're not careful, we look at that prayer that Paul prayed for those people, and we go, 
Well, that's just weird. Why would that be all he prayed on them? Because if that's what really happened in their life, think of the consequences of that. That you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please Him in every way. That you may bear fruit in every good work and that you would grow in the knowledge of God. Again, it's that process. When we really have the knowledge of God, we understand the will of God. If we're not careful, prayer becomes more of a a Santa Claus wish list. And God becomes nothing more than a spiritual ATM machine. We go to God in prayer. We pull out our Holy Spirit debit card. And we start pushing buttons and praying. And what Paul was saying was that when we really understand the character of God and who He really is, it will change the way we pray. And ultimately it will change the things that we pray for. Let me say that again. Ultimately, it will change the things that we pray for. Because our mind won't be the same. You see, Paul prayed for the people of Colossae that their minds would change. And that their minds would always be pleasing to him. Because he knew that if that's what they became, that they would always be praying and living in the right way. Of course, there's problems that we spoke of earlier. Reasons as to why we don't pray at all. None of them are valid. And when we understand the Word of God, we see how wrong we are to think that prayer was supposed to be done that way. Another thing that I think stops us from praying, praying at all, much less effectively, and I know this this is going to sound a little too simplistic, and please bear with me, But I think one of the things that stops us from praying so many times is we don't know what to say. Let me explain. I've talked with people who have told me, I don't know how to pray. In reality, it's not that they don't know how to pray. In reality, here's the problem. At some point in their life, they've heard somebody get up and and pray this elaborate prayer with all the these and thous in, in the right places, and quote Scripture and all that. And because they can't do that, they think they don't know how to pray. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with praying that way. There's nothing wrong with praying that way. But I'm saying that if you don't know all the, the Scripture to quote and, and all the right words and everything that goes along with it, you can still pray. Listen to what John Bunyan said. Our prayers may not be elaborate like we often think they should be. In prayer, it is better to have a heart without words than words without heart. And too many times, there's an awful lot of words without heart. One of the the easiest things to do, once we have read, and studied the Word, and we begin to understand God's character, is to just simply talk to God. Because then we know who He is. How much easier is it to talk to somebody when you really know who they are? 
When we understand, we've read the Word of God, we've studied His character, we've realized what God is like, He becomes our friend, and then it's much easier to talk to Him. And then when we go to Him in prayer, it's not this, we don't feel this need to have this elaborate prayer, it's just a simple conversation between friends. I believe that when Paul prayed for the people of Colossae, he talked to God in his normal voice. Now, if you have a prayer voice, that's fine. I have nothing against that. I don't have one of those prayer voices. I tend to just pray like I talk. Now, I've heard people that had really cool prayer voices. Dear Lord, we humbly beseech you. See, I don't talk like that, really. So I don't really say that when I pray. When I talk to God, I talk to Him like I would talk to anybody else. And the, the point I'm really trying to get across here is that's really all that's required. Is to just talk to Him. That we just go to Him in prayer. It's not the quality of our words. It's not the how elaborate our words is. It's what's behind the words. Is it coming from our heart? And I believe when Paul prayed for the people of Colossae, he, he presented his petition. And everything he prayed for them, he knew that it was within the character of God. Look at the things he prayed. Because Paul also got it. And that's really what we are to do. We're to talk to God. That is, prayer in its simplest form is a conversation between us and Him. Whether we're praying for others or, or we're praying about something that involves us, we simply need to talk to God. Prayer is one of those things that we find that the more we do it, the more we understand the one whom we are praying to, and also then the easier it gets. We should pray not because we understand everything about prayer. But we should pray because we're commanded repeatedly in the Scriptures to present our requests, praises, acknowledgments of sin, expressions of thanksgiving to God. And sometimes we pray because we just realize that's the only option we have. One of my favorite quotes is from Abraham Lincoln during the Civil War. He said, I have been driven to many times to my knees by overwhelming conviction that I had nowhere else to go. My wisdom and that of all about me seemed insufficient for the day. Sometimes we pray because of that very reason. Life seems to overwhelm us, and we realize that we truly have no place else to go but to God. But I will tell you this, when we get to that place where we have no place else to go, if we understand who our God is, it is so much easier to go to Him and speak to Him from our heart. Scripture tells us to pray all the time. It tells us to pray for each other. It tells us to do that so, so that we may become the people He wants us to be. I want us to look real briefly at some of the situations that we are told to pray. 
Luke 6 and 28 says to bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. That one's certainly at the top of our list. In Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, he said this in Ephesians 1, 18 and 19. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. The riches of his glorious inheritance of the saints. And his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength. Again, this is Paul praying for one of the churches that he's associated with. And he is praying specifically within the will of God. Because he got it. Later in the same letter, Paul wrote this in Ephesians 6 and 18. Pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. I think Paul really wanted to get the point across to us that we're supposed to pray to each other. What do you think? Later in the letter that we started reading this morning to the church at Colossae, Paul again mentioned their pastor or overseer of the church. And this is how he and how he looked out for the church. And this is what Paul said. Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. Listen how Paul spoke of their pastor. He is always wrestling in prayer with you, that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. That's how we're supposed to pray. That's how we're supposed to pray for one another. That we wrestle in prayer for one another. That, that our brothers and sisters can stand firm. That when things come along that, that, that would destroy us, that we have, we are there praying for our brothers and sisters that they can stand firm in the will of God. Mature and fully assured. I believe one reason that Paul wrote so much about prayer is that he really understood its importance. I believe he understood its importance because he did an awful lot of it. And I believe he did an awful lot of it because he had a lot of time to do it. If you remember, Paul spent a lot of time in prison or under house arrest. And I realize, I think he really realized at some point that that was the best way he could spend his time while he was in prison under house arrest was to be in prayer. And it's interesting to look that when Paul prayed, when he was in bondage or in prison or under house arrest or someplace where he couldn't be out preaching, the things he prayed for are kind of interesting. You never see that he prayed, God, get me out of here. Not one time do I see that written. Usually his prayers were for his friends and for the churches that he had made connections with over the years. And he didn't just pray for God to to just bless them with all of this and all of that and all of this and all of that. He prayed for their growth in the Spirit. He prayed for their understanding of God's will. I really think, and I know, that Paul understood how important it was that we pray one for another in God's will. And if we're praying 
according to God's will, it doesn't mean that we're keeping our personal needs and concerns out of our prayers. That doesn't mean that we can never pray for ourselves. What it does mean is that our focus in praying puts God's will ahead of our own. And that God's purpose will be accomplished in the process of His meeting our needs. Though we want to have our needs met, the most important thing in our hearts should be the desire that God be glorified in the process. God, I have this really big need and I need you to to help me with this right now. But what I really want to see from this most is that you are glorified in the process. So we study the Word of God. Through study we learn of God's character. When we learn of God's character, we understand how to pray in a way that is in accordance to His will. And I believe that is it is then, and only then, that we find out that we can pray effectively for our needs and for the needs of our brothers and sisters and do it within the will of God. God bless you.